Hello, and welcome to the Inside Envy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Bloomer. Today, I'm going to sit down with John Watson from The Radivist. John recently made a move from L.A. out to Santa Fe. We talk about that transition. Uh, talk a little bit about his upbringing, what, how he got into creating one of the most popular websites on the net for cycling, The Radivist. And we talk about the current state of the industry, frame builders, and even get into discussing a little bit about 4x4 vehicles, as John definitely has a little side affliction with Toyota Land Cruisers. Interesting discussion. Always love to hear this guy's opinion about things. John is a wonderful human, and yeah, it's just always a good time to talk to him. So I enjoyed it. I'm sure you will. Without further ado, John Watson. There we go. All right, John Watson, how you doing? Good, Ken. How are you? I'm good, man. Good to have you on. Thanks for taking some time out. Um, Were you? You're in Santa Fe now, right? Yeah, we just we actually uh, moved to Santa Fe the day that the stay-at-home orders hit Los Angeles, and we kind of lucked out because originally we had rented a U-Haul and hired movers for like March 30th, and mm-hmm. I signed the title on our new house on the 10th, got home, and then we got a phone call on I think the 12th that our U-Haul driver like or U-Haul rental place wouldn't be able to rent us a U-Haul potentially after the 15th. So we had to rent the U-Haul the morning of the 15th and then scramble to find movers to come help us because I can't move my office and our apartment myself and Carrie can't really lift heavy stuff. And we have some, we have this crazy coffee table. That's basically some kind of like, like schist, like a giant piece of like stone that's, probably like 150 pounds and then you know a bunch of big furniture and stuff like that so right yeah we lucked out and got some movers um they only damaged a few things which you know all things considered isn't that bad and we got to our house on like the 16th and we've been here ever since so we've just been it's been weird moving to a new city on a pandemic where like you can't even really like invite your neighbors into your house. Like we've said a few neighbors have come by and said, hello. Um, and we're on a very social block. Some of the people I'd say probably like 40% of the people on our block mountain bike. So, um, nice. you know, yeah, it's, it's cool seeing your neighbors are, are in, into the same things. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been really crazy. So it's trying to adjust Why? to living somewhere. Why'd you guys choose Santa Fe? Um, Carrie has like family ties here. Uh, mm-hmm. her great grandfather is buried in the national cemetery. Like, I don't know, a quarter mile from our house. Like you can see it from our front door. Um, she spent a lot of time here. Her grandmother was like, you know, raised here. Her mom was born in New Mexico. Carrie grew up going to Silver City in Santa Fe. I wanted to live in a small town. I think I'm just a better, better suited for a small town. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to live somewhere higher in elevation cause I missed the seasons. And also, you know, 
it's kind of dumb to ignore the the warming climate and the changing um, climate. So I felt like living at 6,800 feet would uh, bide well during the, the increase in global temperatures. Um, the water, I mean, we're in a drought, but in, on the, like, when you start looking at things, like I've done a lot of, re I, I just like pick up books and start reading about places that I want to know. And, you know, there's like massive fires in like the 1600s as we were like in a pretty substantial drought, like the entire West America was on fire. Um, right. And they found evidence in, you know, tree rings, like how the trees are growing. So ecologically, there's a lot of really interesting things in Santa Fe. It's also a very mm -hmm. poor state. And New Mexico is like one of the poor states in, uh, in the United States. So I kind of felt like, Whereas in other cities like Austin and Los Angeles, how I kind of helped the cycling industry out or the cycling scene or the community or whatever you want to call it, I really felt like I could I could use the Radivist, the you know web platform that I run, to really like bring some attention to the area um, without like as my friends say, jontrifying. You know, I don't <laughs> want, you don't want you want people that are going to move here that are going to put down roots. You don't want people coming here and buying like second vacation homes because the right. housing market is already insane. Um, we lucked out and I'd been saving for like six years, but maybe like saving like with intention for the past three years. So we, we got a good, we got a good deal on a house considering that the neighborhood that we're in is just going to keep growing. And the crazy thing is, since we started looking seriously in February, there's probably only been like five houses within our price range in a part of town that we want to live in. We didn't want to live further out because we wanted to be able to uh, ride a bike places. I wanted to be close to the trails. So our neighborhood is definitely has not hit the bubble yet. So um, right. we bought higher than obviously it was like five, six years ago, but we didn't buy at the height of it. And we got a good deal and it's a fix, you know, we have work to do. The interiors right. are nice, but like the roof has been neglected and there's other like major issues. So it's been, um, it's been fun because we have more than enough projects to be working on right now. Um, and then I've got, you know, review bikes in the queue to keep the content coming in and got all the, the contributors like kind of thinking about stories in a different way. So it's right. I was really nervous to the point where we had set aside a bunch of money for um for our roof and i was like well that money will at least last us 12 months paying our mortgage so because we only we only lost two advertisers um on the website and i understand why um but you know shit happens <laughs> so it's yep. just part of people are losing their jobs in their homes and i have no complaints um you know, it's been a, it's been a crazy, it's been a crazy month. So yeah. 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 No or doubt. Longer. I guess what, what yeah. are we, it's May, May 6th right now. Yeah. So, right. Well, we've been in lockdown over here for, we're on, we're in our eighth week now. Oh God. Yeah. 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 I just, uh, this guy, Tomas just posted a story about, uh, Barcelona after the 50 day uh, lockdown and about how the streets are just filled with bikes and yep. the skies are pretty. And I remember when we, when we rode bikes in, in Barcelona with uh, yep. Matia and, and uh, <laughs> Jeff and everyone. And um, 
how it reminded me of Los Angeles in, you know, both Mediterranean climates, both like sprawling cities on, on the coast, uh, the chaparral yeah. and like all the succulents and everything. And also the smog. Cause it was like super smoggy. Right. Um, yeah. And then seeing all these photos, it was like someone had just like edited out all of the smog. It's so, crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, even down here, you know, we're on the land, you know, the Southern part of Germany and we see a difference. Oh yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing that, you know, with this epidemic, the environment truly has had a chance to just kind of take a moment and breathe and clean, cleanse itself. You know, I mean, it's granted it's, it's a small event, but it's still, I think, you know, you can already see the implications of it. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. My favorite meme from this whole thing was, uh, Black metal artists or black metal bands are seen for the first time since the 1990s in the forest <laughs> of Norway. Uh, the earth is healing. We are the virus. Just because, you know, it's, it's right. Yeah. I, I just, I love, I love all that stuff. But yeah, yeah me too. My, my favorite was, I think it was a tweet from Woody Harrelson. He wrote, um, I don't know who the publicist is for uh, COVID-19, but oh, we yeah. need him for climate change. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like this, like it, it really puts things in perspective when you start realizing like what we need to do to save the world. And then like all it took was like a virus to really like, like if, if the virus, if the virus doesn't go away, like there was another meme that I thought was really funny. And it was like a time traveler came out of his time traveling ship and walked up to a woman wearing like a face mask and was like, what year are we in? And she was like, 2020. And he was like, oh, the first year of quarantine. Like, imagine if this is something, if this is the new norm. And for the next 10 years, we're like doing this like annually for say three months. And mm -hmm. like, what if that is like this, the climate change savior that we needed was, you know, <laughs> a, a, well, a you, pandemic, you know, which is really sure. morbid, but yeah. Yeah. But, you know, if you, there's, you know, plenty of people out there that will say, you know, the universe is talking to us or nature's talking oh, yeah. to us, you, you know, and, you know, you can go pretty deep on that kind of stuff. But, you know, it also makes you stop for a second and just kind of wonder, you know, what sort of path are we on? Is this the right path or do we need to be, yeah. you know, think about a different one? So um, it's definitely a good time to do a little bit of inflection and just think about, you know, all of our behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, for me, it's like, I travel, well, I quit, I quit flying. I think the Barcelona trip was like one of the last times I flew internationally, which mm -hmm. I don't even remember how long ago that was. I, but, you know, I was trying to think of that today. I don't, I think it was 2017. Yeah. That sounds about Isn't right. right. It might've been. Yeah. Cause I moved to LA in 2015. So yeah, that sounds about right. But yeah, I, uh, I was, I decided two years ago to basically just do local, lo like local events, um, right. events that I could drive to. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there is a lot to be said about driving, you know, and I have a, a diesel land cruiser that's 30 years old. Um, <laughs> but you know, it passed California's like carb restrictions. So it's right. not, it's not like, I'm not like rolling coal down the street or whatever, but it does get like 25 miles a gallon on a good day and like 20 miles a gallon on, on the average. So I felt better about driving to events um, and, you know, sticking around a little bit longer, camping, camping a few days before, camping a few days after, like maybe doing yeah. local stories. 
um, versus flying. And it's crazy. Like I, I was one of those journalists that was like on the road in different countries all over the world, three or four mm -hmm. times a month. And you really start to think about the, the effects of that. And, you know, just even like flying versus like driving. And I pretty much just ride oh, my right. bike everywhere. I don't really drive around town, um, which is nice, which was another reason why we wanted to move to Santa Fe because right. it was really hard to feel safe on the roads. Um, a lot of people that have been there for a long time, I feel like we're kind of like the frog in the boiling pot that like didn't really see it. But I, I'm a little more, I'm pretty sensitive about my safety and about, um, people like I, I love George Costanza's rant when like he asks someone in the in the train depot what time it is and everyone's ignoring him and he's like this is a society and I'm like <laughs> out on my bike and like these people are on cell phones with like an a Prius thinking they're saving the world or a Tesla thinking they're saving the world and they almost hit me or I do get hit I, I've been hit three times since I lived in LA and you're just like, I'm a bike. I'm on a bike. I'm on the cleanest form of transportation. You're like Hillary bumper sticker on your Tesla is like, you're not saving the world. Like, do you know where that <laughs> lithium comes from? Do you know where the electricity? Totally. Is? Yeah. It's like, you just go on and on about it. And I was like, yeah, I just can't. There's too many people here. Which, yeah. is, you know, it is what it is. But uh, yeah, it, I, you know, it's, it's really hard. I think it, you don't want a finger point because, you know, I, it's easy to find fault in our own behaviors oh, about totally. things, things that we do and stuff. And, you know, and I think that's the challenge for a lot of people today is to, there's so much information, so much disinformation and, you know, what's right, what's wrong, you know, and, you know, did you read that article on uh bike mag that they've been doing scorched earth? That oh yeah. The series. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That, that's a really good piece. And, you know, for me, it was uh, totally interesting because yeah, I'm, you know, occupied with that topic right now myself, you know, um, sustainability and cycling and what all that means. And, you know, th there's not a clear answer. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of variability there and, you know, whether you want to talk about materials to use for building bikes or supply chains or whatever, you know, yeah. like, like you said, also, you know, doing a product launch, you know, bringing in a bunch of journalists or whatever. And, um, yeah, yeah. It's how deep do you want to go? <laughs> I know it's, it's like the kind of thing where it, it, it ultimately like boils down to like, it, it's the narcissism of small differences, you know, like we right. can sit here and say as cyclists, like we're better for the earth, but then like, how often are you buying a brand new carbon road bike from a big brand that where it was made overseas and shipped over in a boat or like, you mm -hmm. know, a lot, a lot of brands support 1% for the planet. And I'm like, well, yeah, that 1% for the planet is great. But like, what's the offset of making something in China, putting it in a plastic bag, shipping it on a coal burning ship, putting it in another plastic bag and then shipping it via UPS or USPS to the customers around the country versus like someone making the same thing in a little warehouse in like Seattle or something like that. You know, it's, it's, do you, do you think that through this pandemic that companies will look at things like that? I mean, maybe not necessarily from a supply chain uh, or, I mean, not an environmental uh, reasoning, but maybe supply chain because, you know, right now they're probably not feeling it yet. Yeah. But, you know, oh, there are, are going to be comp companies hurt from this Rocky mountain. Like, and this is all, I talk to a lot of bike shop owners, a lot of my friends own shops. I talk to a lot of people. I'll get like weird text messages from like brands. I, don't, I can't, I'm not going to name names, but the, you could tell they've had a few beers and like they might've watched <laughs> something or read something I said. And they're like, 
fucking a man you're so right dude like and, and so one of those instances i you know rocky mountain sales have been great because specialized is out of bikes right like specialized goes out of bikes and suddenly like other companies are looking around for other manufacturers um yeah totally I'm, especially in that mid-range you know that yeah. kind of oh, yeah. 500 dollar up to about probably 1500 yeah. 2000 yeah. so that range dollars gone it's it's all gone. So like, you know, those second tier and third tier brands, you know, all of a sudden are looking pretty good. Yeah. Like all of Linus, you know, like my buddy, Sean, that owns the cup house is like taking deposits for Linus's to be delivered in June. Hmm. It's like, yeah. it, it's gotta be, but the issue is, so there's, there's a lot of stuff that I've been told from people that have gotten laid off from other companies. Um, and I, I'm not going to go into detail about it, because uh, it was told in confidence. The issue is, at the end of the day, these corporations are still corporations. And sure. it doesn't matter if they're a cycling corporation or a cycling company, or if they're a distributor, if they're a manufacturer, like they're still like their bottom dollar, the bottom line is the most important thing to them. And I think we've seen a lot of the the fallout of COVID-19 has shown us the true colors of a lot of companies. And I think it's really it's kind of scary. You know, you have companies that are using COVID-19 as an excuse to like restructure. And that's really scary because, you know, you're, you're a bike company. You're supposed to be progressive. You're supposed to be like saving mm -hmm. the world. But like at the end of the day, you really only care about the bottom dollar. So to answer your question, I don't think this is going to change the modus operandi of these companies at all. And that's honestly like more reason for me to want to support people making shit in their garage or, you know, like making shit. Right. In, like I would, I would rather buy a bag from uh, a, a company like Swift Industries that's co-owned and run by a woman that sponsors like a WTF gravel team and is doing so much to bring inclusion and diversity to the cycling industry than like a giant corporation making shit in China that like, right. It's probably going to last just as long. But again, you, then you're like, am I supporting the evil empire? And I'm, and I'm a, I'm a, you know, we're all hypocrites at some point. Cause if a company comes up um, and is like, Hey, you know, we want to buy an ad on your site. I'm not going to turn them, turn them around, right. turn them down, you know, but I, I will take that ad money then to like pay contributors like that are pushing inclusion and diversity in the website. So it's, we all we all have a role to play in this in this world, and and if we can, we should try to make it better. Um, but that said, we're also living in a capitalist society, so like we have to sometimes like you know be a hypocrite. <laughs> so right, the difference is just admitting it and not trying to like downplay it or deny it, and uh, and like I said, trying to trying to do take whatever hand we're dealt and to make. The industry a better place so yeah i don't know yeah deep that those are deep thoughts for 10 o'clock <laughs> <laughs> no but it's it's you know it's definitely something that i consume myself with and think about a lot and you know it's uh, i i would hope that more consumers would also start considering those options and thinking about you know because i think what people fail to realize is is that their dollar is a vote. And, oh, for sure. You know, yeah. When when you spend that money, you're making you're casting a vote each time. And so, 
am I casting a vote for, like you said, the, the, the big guys, the big corporations, or am I supporting domestically made stuff or the smaller guys? And it, I mean, I'm not saying that all, you know, uh, big companies are necessarily an evil no, empire. Or whatever, no, I don't think so. Because there's, there's a lot of a good examples of some solid companies out there. Yeah. Um, and there's still companies, you know, making stuff in the U S you know, or, you know, or in Europe or, you know, more domestically, and they're doing it with, you know, um, a conscious about both social and environmental concerns. I mean, you know, you could definitely peel the onion and go down the road of, you know, what's sustainable, what's not yeah. sustainable. And I'm sure you can find several experts that will debunk, you know, what we consider to be, you know, sustainable. But, and like I said, it's, it's really tough for the consumer to decipher all of that because there's, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to digest. And so, but at the end of the day, you know, support the guys that are, you know, doing stuff in the U S support the guys that are, you know, making it themselves or yeah, or Europe or support. Australia right. or Japan or whatever. Yeah. Totally. Short supply chain, yeah. a clean supply chain, you know, that information is out there and you can find it. Yeah. But no. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a lot of people will say it's, it's a privilege to support, uh, domestic manufacturing or whatever. I don't even know. I, I need, we need to have a better term for it because domestic production refers to wartime, uh, like creation of, of ammunition and like supplies and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I personally, it's been really hard for me with like Trump's whole like campaign about like, oh, make America great again, start making stuff in the US. Because I'm like, I I'm not part of that mindset. I'm just part right. of the mindset that you know, if you buy a pair of shorts that are $100 from some company that makes them in the Bay Area, and they last you for six years, is that more important? Or is it more important to have a pair of shorts that's made overseas for half the price that'll fall apart in two years? Like, can your style, can your decisions and choices sure. last for five years? I don't know. But right. it's a it's a filter for consumption for me, where I'm like, I need some shorts. Okay, there's like all these options that are made in like Bangladesh or Turkey. But, you know, I try to look, look at the stuff that was made in the country of its design origin. So if it's a Turkish company making shorts, that's awesome. Or if it's like, um, you know, if it's a Japanese company making stuff in Japan or a German company making stuff in Germany, I feel like that I can I can sleep at night better knowing that, like, these people were paid a real living wage and were right. working in like you know, safe working conditions. Cause I've been to China and I've been to Taiwan and I've seen factories and um, I've talked to people that worked at factories and they all say the same thing. There's the factory that, that uh, the public is shown. So like when the white people come over from America, there's the factory that they take them to where it's like safe and clean. And then there's the factory that like makes a bulk of the majority of their product. And that is like not safe. <laughs> um, so, but without going, you know, it, I don't, I don't want to like politicize any of this stuff, but it, right. you know, I think that in, in the long term, these decisions that might have been viewed as like privileged decisions are actually going to be moved under the, the umbrella of this is the reality. And if we're going to save this world, we have to, we have to really tone back, like turn back our consumerism. We have to like reevaluate late term capitalism and we have to like reevaluate where all of our shit comes from you know you don't go out and buy apples made in china so like why would you buy you know if you're buying stuff from your local farmer's market but a lot of people can't afford to buy shit from farmer's market or can't afford to buy a hundred dollar pair of shorts and it's like 
so that's it can it can for sure be be touted as privilege to say i'd rather have a bicycle frame made by someone in new hampshire than like a bicycle frame made by someone in taiwan even though i mean and the mm -hmm. truth of it is like the taiwanese can make a they, they make the best bikes hands down like if you if you want quality like the bikes are great they that's all they do right um but i don't think best is the qualifier here i think for me it's it's different you know and also a taiwanese steel bike is going to weigh like almost three times what a u.s made steel bike is going to make or like what a what a matia sure. like a legor sikli uh duo is going to weigh like that that bike that you know you and matia designed um mm -hmm. was awesome because that was like i think that was even before the open would had really like taken off and people weren't really running like 2.2 275 tires on a cross bike and now look at like all of the companies that are doing that and yeah it was know. about the same time yeah open came out with theirs so yeah it's, it's yeah. cool and, and and that that kind of grassroots uh catalyst has always been really interesting for me you know well, the, well that's you know if you go through the history of you know cycling i mean the, you know the garage shops were the innovators back in the day oh yeah you like, know? i mean montrager Bontrager, yeah. um, you know, Doug Bradbury at Manitou. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, you, the list is long. And, you know, uh, that, that's where the, the innovation came from. And then, you know, those guys got eventually absorbed up by the bigger guys. And um, But there's, I still think that there's, you know, innovation coming out from the smaller guys. You know, obviously in full suspension, uh, it's a little bit more challenging because of the, you know, to design a full suspension bike costs a lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, to, to get the jigs and to, to do it and obviously doing it in anything but aluminium or uh, carbon, you're talking about a pretty heavy bike at the end of yeah. the day. Well, um, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. My Starling weighs less than like any comparable full suspension on the market, you know? Really? Yeah. That thing weighs 30 pounds. So you, okay. find, you find me a 150 travel carbon bike that weighs less than 30 pounds and I'll, I'll be like, okay, that's fine. But also, well, what I wanted to say yeah. is there's some, there's some really rad full suspensions coming out, yeah. like the Swarf yeah. and uh, um, Morph Cycles and yeah. Stanton. And I mean, there's, I mean, even Sklar did a bitchin' uh, yeah, full single suspension. Pivot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. the crazy thing so, is how the UK is like really leading the charge on that stuff. Um, and the US frame builders are, are, I mean, rightfully so. Like, you know, and at the end of the day, a single pivot, there's only so many ways to build a single pivot. You know, like right. Cameron Falconer built that one for the NV launch and it was beautiful. And, but it, it looked like a Starling and it looked like mm -hmm. the, any other single pivot design that came out. And there are limitations to that. Like it took me a sure. while to set my, my Starling up with the coil shock to get it so that the tire didn't hit the C2. But mm -hmm. I think the biggest challenge for the small manufacturers building full suspensions, like, you know, Joe from Starling can't go out and license the, dw link you know like license that's what i was saying yeah, it's, yeah. it's too expensive yeah. it's just it's it's um yeah it's it's that's cost prohibitive for a small builder that's you know i think if there was like an you know to, to borrow from it an open design yeah that you know builders could share yeah. and you know do their own interpretations of it that would be one way i think to spread those costs across the builders and create a platform that, you know, more people could use. Yeah. And you just got to wait for the licensing to run out. Like, I don't remember which suspension design, just the licensing just like ran out on it. But, um, but also like, it's really, it's really funny because 
I ride a lot of full suspension bikes and I honestly think that like it's this interesting dichotomy of like how do we make a bike that rides well out of carbon and so a lot I almost feel like a lot of the design of full suspension bikes is swimming upstream against the 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 riding harshness of carbon fiber like carbon is stiff it kind of sucks it's kind of jet like chittery it's kind of like um chattery it's just it's you hit a rock garden on a carbon full suspension and the bike is going to take off on its own line and i'm, I'm that's mm. a slight exaggeration but when you ride a steel full suspension like a single pivot steel full suspension in my opinion rides way better than anything else on the market from carbon or aluminum because it's mm. the material itself you're working with the material to enhance the ride quality, not working against the material to try to enhance the ride quality. And that's, it's, it really like, it really messed me up because I rode this Starling and I didn't, I you know, showed up and I was like, oh, this is going to ride like a turd. And I was like, oh, this climbs mm -hmm. really well. Oh man, this thing, this thing dances on the downhill. Like it feels amazing. And then the next right. week I had to ride a 5010 or maybe it was vice versa. And then, but I rode like a, or I think I rode like the, the high tower here in Santa Fe, like when we were visiting last uh, June and I was like, man, it's just, it's just not the same. Like steel just, <laughs> it's like a steel fork versus a carbon fork. You know, it's the steel fork right. is always going to feel better, but also a steel fork made by a guy in a garage somewhere is probably not going to pass consumer safety <laughs> regulations like a carbon fork will. So there's problems right. on both ends, but yeah. Yep. No, I, I, I haven't ridden a steel full suspension yet. It's one of the things I definitely want to experience. Um, uh, I'm actually tomorrow I'm going over, there's a, um, you know, raw, have you heard of raw? The no. R A A W no. to German, German guy. He's making aluminum. Full oh suspension. yeah. 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 Okay. So cool. I'm curious, I'm going to uh, ride one of those. So I'm really curious about that to see how that rides. And then um, I've been talking to um, the guy at Morph yeah. about try, trying one of his bikes. So um, I would, you know, I definitely, you know, I'm always interested in that stuff, you know, having done, you know, frames with Mattia and just riding different stuff. And, you know, every time I get on the, you know, obviously this is just a gravel bike, but every time I get on the, the my steel gravel bike, it's just, it's magical it's yeah it's so nice yeah yeah like the the bike packing bike that adam sklar built me it's like titanium with a long wheelbase like my one-up rack is the the arm struts are like all the way out but a titanium frame i don't even remember the diameter of the seat or the down tube with this massive like baseball bat down tube and then on top of that you've got you know a steel fork and we were ripping down this descent in uh, Death Valley. It was like a five-mile descent. And like uh, Adam was riding next to me. And I was like, dude, look at the fork. It's like flexing. And Adam's like, your whole bike is flexing. You know, 50 pounds worth of like, <laughs> shit on it. And I'm 200 pounds. And this, the bike is, the wheels are moving in, in either direction. And I, and I was just like, yeah, I can just rail these like, these, you know, 10-inch deep ruts in the sand. And just like, yeah. And the whole bike was just moving. And I always wonder like what it would be if you get one of these like super tech review guys that come. I always love reading like the roadie reviews of, mm. of gravel bikes because like you can tell they started off on road and they're like dipping their feet in water or like dipping their feet in gravel. 
Right. Where like you see photos of them and they're riding on the hoods like down single track and you're like, and they look all stiff and, but I'm like, yeah, most people would consider that ride quality a bad thing because they've pretty much their experience to riding off-road bikes have been limited to carbon, but titanium frames with a steel fork, it's like melting like a big piece of butter on a skillet. There's just no, nothing better than that. Like, uh, right. It's ultra smooth. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's, there's things you can say it's like skateboarding or skiing or surfing, you know, all, all the, all those, the, every other, I feel like every other sport really puts a lot of like energy into making flex and pop a uh, ride quality. And I think cycling is like, it's gotta be stiff. Right. Be stiff. And I just don't get it. I'm like, maybe if it's a crit racing bike for sure, but like, I don't want a right. stiff mountain bike. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's how most of the, you know, especially the European magazines test is, Ugh. you know, it's, it's all about, you know, how does the frame flex, you know, at the bottom bracket, you know, they put it in this fixture and all that. And there's very little sort of, you know, this, um, how does it ride? How does it yeah. feel? You know, there's, there's le less of that involved in the test. It's more empirical data. Em emotive data is what I, like, yep. I would call that. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's really hard so. for me to review bikes because I grew up like reading magazines and bike reviews. And I think when I started the website in 2006, I didn't even really give a shit about reading product reviews. For me, I was like, cycling is this, this crazy thing with all of these little niches or whatever you want to call them. And like, we're talking about bikes in a way that's like more scientific than, than, engaging about the human emotion and i just never really was attracted to that and i think that's kind of how we right. you know that obviously uh, that was 14 years ago so my opinions have changed but that's I, I still try to like review bikes or products on like the emotion on the emotional level um mm -hmm. and i think it's really great like uh spencer harding is a is a reviewer a contributor for the site. The best, I, I still think like some of the best stories on the website have been, have come from Spencer. Um, and then you read his reviews versus Morgan Taylor's reviews and Morgan's up in uh, Vancouver and Morgan can write like 10,000 words <laughs> reviewing a bike. And, and his reviews are like two cups of coffee for me, like in the morning. And I love them and they're so great and they're so detailed. And then you read Spencer's, and they're completely different, but it's just, it's been so amazing for me to like have this website where you can like have different opinions and different styles of writing. And I feel like so many websites are focused on just making it like, you know, making it the same, like, I don't right. like homogeneity or whatever. I'd probably, that's probably not even a word, but just the homogenous nature of like everyone's review reads the same. And to me, right. I, I love having arguments or discussions about like a tire tread on sure. the website from like, sometimes the, the, the contributors will like get into it talking about tires and it's like, it's just, it's cool. It's cool that, that we've got such a diverse, uh, style on, on the Radivist and I'm so grateful for it. Like there's nothing, there's nothing I want, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm such a, I'm, I'm happy. I'm content. And it's ultimately right. because I think everyone's doing such a kick-ass job. So anyway. So you said 2006, you, it was at the start of the Radivist? No, or was no, that, well, um, that was probably is not probably, which, um, right. yeah, that was, my nickname was uh, John Prolly. Um, 
I like kind of grew up uh, listening to hardcore and like metal, like a lot of vegan straight edge hardcore and everyone had names like Dan death or whatever. And when I started uh, in college, I started going to shows with people that lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. And um, yeah, it was like, Oh, John's driving to Winston Salem to see the every time I die show. Like, well, which John, mm -hmm. uh, John Prolly and a few of the guys that were up a year above me in architecture school, uh, kind of trolled the more serious students by every time, like someone in the class would go on some long winded answer to a very simple question. They would just go probably. And it like pissed the grad students off or whatever. And so we just kind of picked it up as a, I hung out with those guys and I just kind of picked it up as like a nervous twitch thing. And so I, people just started calling me probably. Um, and uh, so I moved to New York in 2000 five 2000 yeah 2005 and uh started documenting cycling there like alley cats and also art like i'd go to gallery shows and uh so i wanted a website that was kind of about the way that i saw new york city um and and also just like the cycling industry as a whole and so i was like okay i gotta think of some name and i personally don't like names where it's like bikerider.com you know gravelbikes.com right. like that kind of stuff just never really like i i just want to i want to create a brand i don't want to like say there's this trend going on right now in cycling and i'm going to buy the url and that's my brand because that's just less interesting to me so um but yeah so i created a website called probably is not probably and then in like 2011 or so i i rebranded to the radivist which was inspired by a project that I worked on with this videographer in Brooklyn named Sarah Kinney. And we did a profile on Johnny Coast and Seth Roscoe. And uh, Seth was talking about a piece that Jocko Whalen wrote about the atavistic urge for things to play. Uh, you know, dolphins like swimming through waves or why sea otters will slide down a rock or why a dog will die if it's not allowed to like play. And um, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's that's really cool. The the atavistic urge for things to play and like let's let's spin on that. And I was like, well, how do we make it less serious? And called it the Radivist, and uh, it it stuck. And um, atavism is a, a throwback. Um, it's a it's a behavior that uh, might have been dormant. Um, it's also the uh, why humans want to sit around a campfire and tell stories and you know share experiences. And um, so atavism is is about kind of getting to the base of like what makes us humans and also what makes animals want to play. And so I thought, yeah, the Radivist is cool. It's a made up word. And I pinged my buddies at land who are these like, <laughs> like if you haven't seen lands work, you actually have seen lands work because land has done so, so many brand like branding projects for brands that like from like Mezcal to like weed to polar, they did the polar branding, they did Ace Hotel. And then you think of like what Polar became and uh, how everyone copied Polar style. Well, they're copying land style. And so I like gave them a bunch of drawings. And one of them was this like grim fairy tale creature of like some beast, like eating a milk maiden. And I was like, I, well, <laughs> maybe not like, don't show this animal like eating the, the milk maiden, but I really like this animal. It looks crazy. It's got like a, a it kind of looks like a jackal and it's got this long tail. And so we, yeah, I was going to say, it looks like a jackal. Yeah. So we created this like mythos about, uh, 
the animal that was born with the long tail that kept tripping over its tail and falling and its back is all scarred and messed up. And, and that's where we like came up with like the rubber side up, like you learn on a bike by falling and it's, you know, it sucks, but like my friend Garrett that owns his company Strawfoot was just posting a video of his daughter on her little scoot bike, just ripping these super tight circles in her driveway. And then all of a sudden she hits that tipping point and skinned her leg and uh so it's like yeah she learned the tipping point on that bike uh, yep yeah um and so yeah anyway uh we just created this brand that i mean the logo is just a jackal and like so people think it's cool even if they don't ride bikes um yeah i don't know it's just it's 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 weird the the whole i mean envy was like the same way you know, it's like, yeah. you got to take a name, you got to take a word and make it your own. And so I think there's yeah. a lot more to be said about, about brands that I think there's, there, there are people that want to establish a brand. And I think people that want to like piggyback off of like a fad. And I think that's like, totally. that's like the difference in the world. Like it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Like say trail running has a resurgence and, or I don't know, scuba diving or something like that. And like, there's going to be the scuba diving.com. And then there's going to be like the yep. guy that does or the woman or whoever that does something different with scuba diving. And maybe there'll be like this, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I'm rambling. Yeah, but. it's no, it's to I totally agree with you. I mean, it's funny if you would Google, if you'd use German Google and Google rod house, which means, uh, you know, wheelhouse. Yeah. Literally translated. There's thousands of them. It's yeah. like it's the most uncreative name. And there's, there's actually a shop in Basel that has my favorite name, and it's called Obst and Gemüse. And it means fruit and vegetables. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. It's, totally. a, it's a cool shop. I mean, they do cargo bikes. They do high-end bikes. And it's just, it's rad. And it's just, you know. It's rad. They do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it's just like, yeah, it's so cool. And it's yeah. just like, um, actually, you would love that shop. They have a. Uh, there's a guy, I think he's in Germany. He's building these um, cargo bikes. It looked, you know what they look like? They look like as if vanilla would make a cargo bike. Oh, the, oh cool. The yeah. details on it and just, you know, the finishing touches. And then actually last time I was there, they actually had an army green one in there. And it just, it looked like Speedwagon took an urban cruiser and turned it into this cargo bike. That's cool. It was, yeah, it was sweet. So I, that's something I really want a Larry versus Harry, uh, bullet. Um, I just, I'm like the only time we ever really have to drive is if we have to go to the grocery store or like the hardware mm -hmm. store or the post office. And it's usually like, we're picking up big, big things. And I'm like, man, and someone <laughs> rode past on a, a Yuba cargo bike yesterday as we were like going to the, um, grocery store. And I was like, man, I, I could fit like three of those big rubber made bins that we take to the post office like twice a week. Oh yeah. Yeah. Easy. And there's like so many bike lanes here that it just, you don't even have to like from my neighborhood, there's a bike lane and you don't have to ride on the street at all. And you can pretty much get across town easily. Nice. So it, it I'll, always, send, I'll, I'll send you a link to this one. You can check it out. Oh yeah. I definitely want to see it. I, I, I really, I appreciate the European countries for doing like the, as Mike Flanagan used to say, like uh transport, not sport. And um, I, mm -hmm. every time I, that's actually what got me, really jive to move to New York was I spent like about a month in Holland after graduating architecture school. I had some friends that worked at um, various like high, like 
you know, UN Studio or like uh, Rem Coolhouse's uh, OMA um, or <laughs> just like various. I had friends that worked at like Morphosis and like all these like kind of rock star like architecture offices. And so I went over and visited some friends and we just rode a bike everywhere. And I saw these these bike feats with like, you know, the mom putting on like makeup with the school yeah. kids in the basket, like riding yeah. like no handed. And you're just like, what the fuck? This is awesome. So I, just, <laughs> so I was like, I want to move. I want to move somewhere where I don't need a car. And so I actually didn't, yeah. I didn't have a car for the whole time I lived in New York. And for the first like three years I lived in Austin. So it was, it was cool. It was just like, it's, it's different. And people are like, blah, 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 blah. It's so hard. And it's like, well, yeah, of course it's hard, but it's easy on your wallet. You know, I never took the train when I lived in New York. I rode my bike everywhere. And it was like my coworkers would complain about having to take the train and then having to go to the gym after work. And I was like, well, I just rode 20 miles today. Yep. Just as part of my commute. And yeah, it's just different. It's a different mindset for sure. Totally. Yeah. yeah that's, that's one thing I, we live in a small town in the Southern part of Germany here. And that's, I, I look during the week, if I'm not, you know, um, going somewhere to do like media stuff or anything like that. I don't touch my car. It just yeah. it sits and I'm on the bike, which I just totally love that. I mean, our, our kids ride their bikes to school and, you know, I go grocery shopping on the bike and everything. And it's, it's, it's to me, it's, it's not only having the car parked. It's also, it gives me time back, you know? Oh I, yeah, totally. That's time that I get to think about things and, uh, I get outside, I get some, it's like you said, activity. And then when I get back home from doing my morning grocery run or whatever, you know, I got the blood flowing, you know, I got lots of oxygen in my brain. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lit up. I'm ready to go. Yeah. And it, it feels so good. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, I haven't had, oh, well, I didn't have a car for like a month here. Uh, my, my Land Cruiser was getting like a few like leaks, like mm -hmm. it, it's a, you know, Japanese import. So we never got them here in the States. So like the average shop couldn't figure out like why a certain thing was like leaking and they were just like, I don't know. So I sent it up to a specialist up in um, Stockton and he's had it waiting on parts because all of the international shipping, like the the just standard $20 shipping from Japan has been halted because there's no uh, flights right now. So right. you either pay $400 for DHL Express or you, you wait. And so he's it's just been sitting up there. And it was really nice because I was like, oh, I don't, I mean, here in town, I don't need it. If I want to go mountain biking, I just ride to the trail. I don't have to drive 15, 20 minutes to go to the trail. Um, and it's been great. And we actually, we just, oddly enough, we, <laughs> a friend of mine uh, was getting rid of, a friend of a friend was getting rid of some uh, of those troop carriers, the 75 series Land Cruisers that are basically just like a mini Sprinter van, but a Land Cruiser and pandemic pricing. It was like, kind of a dumb deal so i took out a personal loan to to buy one and now i'm going to be selling my <laughs> other one to pay for that but now i'm like i have to somehow get this land cruiser from california or get to it and then sell it and so it's like right it cars no matter what like it's it's a hobby for me and it's like weird that it's the antithesis antithesis of biking or cycling right but like cars are just a pain in the ass no matter what no even if you buy a brand new car it's a pain in the ass one way or another and it's like life right. is so much simpler without them but my line of work i kind of need like a big four by four um you know and i still want to keep traveling and driving around um how, how come you got into the toyota land cruiser what was the 
I don't know. Uh, it was kind of a, um, well, I mean, like we grew up driving like four by fours on the beach in North Carolina because you could still do that. And so my friends had like blazers or Broncos or like whatever. And so we would drive those on the beach and get them bogged in sand. And, you know, you drive out to the good break. This is before like fat bikes, you know, I, I had a beach cruiser, <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, and so we drive out to the good break and then hopefully make it back before the tide came in. So we would always get stuck in the oncoming tide and, you know, burying like a tire in the sand and winching off of it or like snatch strapping out buddies and kind of doing like a little bit of like redneck stuff. Um, and so uh, I had a Tacoma. I had like a first gen Tacoma when I lived in Austin for mountain biking and car camping. And like we would go up to Pace Bend and camp up there and ride bikes. And then I moved to California and it was just a single cab Tacoma. And uh, so mm -hmm. my girlfriend my and our dog or like anytime I had friends come in town, we're like cramming into the single cab. And uh, I was like, yeah, I really want a Land Cruiser, but they suck for gas mileage. Like the, even if you have a manual, like the best you could do is like carbureted FJ 60 with a manual and you could get like 18 miles a gallon out of that, which is, which is mm -hmm. good. But then you're dealing with a carburetor and then the FJ 60s in the States were like 15 grand for like a one. And I just started looking at pricing and 15 grand for one with like 250,000 miles. And I started realizing that like all these Japanese vehicles were coming under the 25 year import law. So in the US, a vehicle has to be 25 years old to bring it in unless you have an exact match. So like if I live in Germany and I buy like a, a BMW M5, that's the same exact M5 that we had in the States. I could just bring that over. But in, in, right. in terms of like SUVs, the rest of the world pretty much got diesels because they were fuel efficient. And the US was like, we don't want fuel efficient SUVs. We want these gas guzzlers for whatever fucking reason. And so I, I found one on eBay or not on eBay on Craigslist. An importer was bringing them in. It was like 80,000 miles on a, a high roof HJ61 for $15,000. And I had just gotten paid for some commercial photography work that I didn't think I was going to get paid for because it had been like eight months. And I was like, well, I have 15 grand right here. And so I took a first <laughs> drive and um, Carrie, my girlfriend, uh, was actually, she was on a photo shoot somewhere and I picked her up from the airport in this like kind of sage green uh, HJ61, which is a 60 series Land Cruiser with a high roof and a turbo diesel engine in it. And we drove straight to um, Utah and did like a canyoneering trip and like, you know, camped out at this like, massive uh land art piece uh halfway between la and uh zion national park and it was sweet we got like 22 miles a gallon on this like big lifted truck um and then of course i couldn't get it registered in california so i sold it and then bought one that was already registered in california and that's the 80 series i have now and that was like maybe four years ago um mm -hmm. and uh yeah, as, as the thing that for me was really important was having a, a fuel efficient vehicle that was old so um, that I could work on. So there's no electronics in it. Everything is like regulated by like a, a belt or, a you know, some kind of mechanical pump. Yep. Um, and then it's just stripped down. There's no airbags. There's no like bullshit electronics to fail on you. There's no relays to fail. And then we started getting deeper and deeper into the backcountry, And so like you start ripping a bumper off on a rock or you're, you're like getting high centered. So you get a bigger tire and it was all like kind of out of necessity, you know, a winch. So when we get stuck, mm -hmm. 
got to carry a bike rack. So we, we made a bike rack with a tire swing out. So at the end of the day, you're in this 35 inch tire lifted turbo diesel land cruiser with like a 50 gallon fuel tank and like all these mods to make it a, you know, we had a rooftop tent. So we, I think I lived in it for like four months out of the year, maybe even five months out of the year last year. Um, and it's great. And it was awesome. And it was kind of everything we needed. Um, but because it has a California title, I really want to sell it in California because you can't get them registered in California anymore. They've like tightened down restrictions. So, but for me, I think, you know, the Japanese have always like done things in a very efficient and intelligent way. And um, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Australia and Tasmania. So seeing how the entire country was built off of this FJ 45, which is this tiny little pickup truck by today's standards. And for some reason in America, we need like a, Ford F550 to just go to the lumber store. And it's like so mind blowing to me that versus, the, but then you go to Australia and you're like, oh, I really want one of these uh, Land Cruiser pickup trucks. And they're like, oh, we really want a Raptor. And it's like, oh, of course, <laughs> you always want what you can't have. Right. But, um, I just think there's like a, there's a, a, an intelligence to the design of Japanese vehicles that we just mm. don't have in America, period. I'm sorry. There's just no one in America is designing <laughs> anything that's as intelligent as, is even the bottom, like lowest end, like a, a Mitsubishi, like Pajero or whatever is going to be way better than like anything Ford designs. And it's people are mm -hmm. going to, you know, get riled up about that. But for me, I've just, you know, I, oh, and we were in Japan for circles uh, and Chris King. And so we went to the Toyota Museum. Right. Just like, holy shit. Look, I didn't even know that we got a lot of these models. Um or, or I didn't even know that a lot of these models existed. Like I had never seen a Toyota Blizzard before, which is like a mm -hmm. little Suzuki Samurai size uh, FJ. Um, and I, yeah, I honestly like I always like loved the aesthetic of the '80s Land Cruisers, but I could just never afford one. And so, yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's kind of you went to you went to the Toyota Museum in uh, Salt Lake, right? Oh During... yeah, Land Cruiser Museum. Yeah, 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 well, Land Cruiser. Yeah. Uh, during naps about a couple years ago yeah yeah that was awesome yeah that's that guy uh yeah he's got he's got so much he's got everything i mean it's it's really it's really interesting the 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 diesel thing like i mean diesels are really gnarly you know they're not they're not clean vehicles but i think as long as you keep it stock in terms of like the fueling and you're not like mm -hmm. blowing black smoke I don't know. It's like kind of the lesser of two evils. Like you either have a gasser that gets like eight miles a gallon or you have a diesel that gets 22. So you're buying less diesel. So right. I don't know. And then, it, like I said, like I buy stuff that's made in like a factory, like usually local to me, not overseas. So it's again, it's the guilt spiral of like, right. You know, of, of oh, I know fuel dependency. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up, uh, around auto racing, my dad raced cars, and you know that. So I have that motorhead in me. Yeah, you know, uh, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same dichotomy. You know, because I ended up going the route of cycling, and you know, I I, I deem myself as somewhat a environmentalist, um, but you know, I still have that desire to have a cool vehicle, and um, so I bought a '88 volkswagen t3 synchro oh yeah those things are awesome i saw that yeah. photo you had yeah yeah so yeah. It, it's a bomber and you know i just the motor is getting redone and you know it's getting everything updated and you know i, I told my wife i was like look this thing is like for the long haul this yeah. is like 
this this will be around a long long time and, and plus when you get in that thing it just has such a different feel yeah you know it's just the the doors and the metal it's just solid it's like you know this thing's gonna last yeah that's i mean that's that's why i bought the troopy like i it's it's honestly a really dumb time to buy a vehicle like that but mm -hmm. especially since we need a new roof on our house which is why i'm ultimately selling the 80 series but yeah, you get into the Troopy and it's just a big metal box that's got like a seven foot long. So from behind the the seat, the driver's seat to the back door, it's like seven feet and four inches. Wow. Yeah. So it's 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 exactly what I want. And then you could take that thing anywhere. Like, I mean, I'm not gonna mm -hmm. go like do some of the crazy four by four trails in Moab. Like I won't take it on Cane Creek Canyon or like anything right. crazy like that. But you know, it'll get anywhere. It'll get away from people, which is ultimately like what, what our mo main right. motivation is. And then we're going to cut the roof off and put a pop top on it and build out like some cabinets in the back. And yep. But yeah, the cool thing about it is like it, it when the engine goes, maybe I'll just drop a 350 Chevy V8 in it because it's basically just a box and there's not even really much of a wiring harness. It's like starter mm -hmm. and like a windshield wiper relay and stuff like that. So yep but um yeah i don't know it's they're definitely like it's been in the shop for a week getting a, the body lift removed that the guy in australia uh put on it but the, mm. when the importer brought it in he cut out all of the body rust because they all rust they're just old they're thin steel like they're kind of disposable right. vehicles you know um so the importer cut out all the body rust so all the hard work was done the engine is, you know, those are like 800,000 kilometer engines. So the engine's good to go. So now it's just like trying to make it more comfortable because it's a rattle box. So I'm going to dynamat the whole <laughs> interior and put some better seats in it. And they, luckily the AC works and the radio works. Um, but yeah, you're driving like a metal box. That's that's like a brick aerodynamically. Same with like the Synchros. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. it's They're just a, a brick, but cool bricks <laughs> yeah yeah a guy down the street uh his name is bill and he works for bti which is a cycling distribution uh company yep. um he dropped a subaru engine in his uh doka yeah he's got this beautiful doka and he did oh nice he did it all in his garage which i was just like wow that's cool and you know you can yeah. talk to some people and tell that they can do that stuff and yep yeah i don't have the patience for it i'm like <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's it's. I mean, I I can do a lot of the smaller stuff, like you said, yeah. but I mean, like the major stuff. I I gave my van to a guy. Uh, he actually does a num. He did Rob Haran, the free rider, the German free rider oh, yeah. guy. He has the Sync uh, Sync Chronicles. Oh uh, yeah, that's him. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did his van. He's done a few other vans for a couple other mountain biker guys over here, and all of them raved about his work. And I was like thumbs up let's go yeah so and he said but he says it it takes a while so like i think he's gonna have it in total for like three months oh. which hey fine dude like three months is is nothing like in terms of like working on projects like i have friends that have been building projects for three years right they're just like like one of my favorite i like watching a lot of australian four by four like touring uh videos in the u.s people call it overlanding which i'm like so sick of because <laughs> they're just going car camping i'm like that's not overlanding overlanding is like going to europe or going into south america and like driving past or through multiple countries and yeah self-sustained travel on a vehicle which includes bicycles for like months and years at a time not car camping on the weekend to go to joshua tree or something but 
that's a whole <laughs> other thing. But I love watching these Aussies because they're just like, we're going to take an 80 series chassis and put a 40 series cab on it with a hundred series engine with like all these like different parts to make like, modifications, the best, you know, you tour or whatever thing. And you're just like, yeah. I don't want to know how much money it's spent, but it takes like three years and they're just like dumping money into it. But, Oh yeah. Oh yeah, totally. It's, it's amazing. That's, I've seen that also on the VW side with the Dokas and the synchros. I mean, people just, where do you want to go? You know, yeah. how much do you want to spend? How much time, how much energy do you want to put into this project? That's the really depressing thing is like, you know, bike brands will be like, Hey, we want to use this photo for our like inner bike booth. And I'm like, oh, okay, that that's like pretty, a pretty big, you know, use of the photo. So here's my rate. And they're like, Oh, that's way too much money. Can we just send you some backpacks? And I'm like, I can't pay rent or my mortgage or like a right. contributor with a backpack. But then I shoot a photo of my truck with like a tent and the company is like, not, not even like, batting an eye like okay yeah sure here you go here's a check and the check yep. is like in the mail that week and you're just like how i mean obviously it's anything that's going to kill the earth is going to have more money because that's like what corporations and that's what the world is all about <laughs> and it's really depressing but again right. the hypocrisy of like a cycling blogger that like is really into like four by fours and yeah it's weird it's yeah there's like there's all that like the tension of uh people in bigger cities complaining about like bigger trucks. And I'm like, well, where the fuck do you think your vegetables from, from the farmer's market come from? You think they drive it in on a Prius? Like, <laughs> you know, like far, you go to farms and you go to like construction sites and you go out in the country. Like I grew up in the country and like people drive big ass trucks because they have to haul big ass things. And like, as like the, the urban environments are becoming more like rule minded, you know, like buying stuff locally or like going to a farmer's market. It's like you're, those two worlds are crossing and, um, I just, I, I really cringe every time I read like an environmentalist out of the Bay area complaining about like a big farm truck being in their city. And I'm like, well, that's, that's where your farmer's market stuff comes from. Granted there, of course yep. there are also just people that like big trucks and you know, that's, I understand that, but I don't like mm. blanket statements, which, you know, I'm, I, I'm probably making one right now, but <laughs> <you know. laughs> we're all hypocrites, whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Rob, Rob actually has a deal with Volkswagen uh, as well. He, uh, they, Volkswagen uses his van for some promotion photos and I think it, they like, they have like a separate sort of lifestyle website and oh, cool. posted his, his van on there a bunch. So that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty cool. So yeah. Um, you've been up to envy, uh, for our house show last year. Yeah. To, to shoot the builders yeah. and uh, be part of that. Um, so what, you know, the builder community, you've always been a big supporter of that. And uh, the, how, how healthy do you think that is right now? Oh, I mean, I don't, it's hard. Like you talk to some builders and they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be just have to go be a UPS driver. Cause like, I don't have any orders. And then, something happens and like they get like 20 orders and they're busy for the rest of the year. Um, mm -hmm. It definitely ebbs and flows. Um, uh, yeah. It's, I mean, I love, I love the frame builders, you know, and, and the envy frame builders, as I call them, you know, um, are just awesome people. Um, uh, I, you know, I try to buy a bike from people that I like, you know, I love mm -hmm. Adam Sklar. He's just such a, he's such a positive 
uh, positive guy. He's, uh, he's young, you know, he's pushing agendas that I think like a lot of people don't think to push. Um, you know, he supports various like WTF or women trans femme, uh, organizations. Yep. And, um, I love Cameron Falconer cause I just think he's like the way his brain works is like really interesting. Um, you know, he lives up in Quincy, California and like a shed in the woods and rides motos and rides mountain bikes. Mm -hmm. And Curtis Inglis, I think is this guy that just has a style unlike any other in the bike industry. Yeah. Um, that's why I have a retro tech and, uh, yeah, you know, Jeremy CSIP, like just everyone, everyone is doing something really interesting. And, um, I, I really appreciate when manufacturers support each other. So Envy's making wheels mm -hmm. in Utah, uh, white industries is making hubs and aluminum rims and Petaluma. And then you have all these frame builders and then you've got Paul component and Chico and you've got bag mm -hmm. makers from like all over the place doing really interesting things. And it's, it's like getting to the point where it's like someone just needs to make like a derailleur in the U S <laughs> and like, you could pretty Paul. much. Hey Paul. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we joke. Uh, I, and, and it's really unfortunate that the pandemic hit this year because, uh, Travis, from Paul was like, and I, I might get in trouble for saying this, but he was saying that last year, Paul was looking to their past and their heritage. And this year they're looking to the future. So take that as you will. Like it could mean that they've got right. new products on the way. But in that sense, like I really nice. love like hope, hope in the UK. Like mm. again, I, you know, I think those are the best hydraulic brakes I've used. Like the new ones, the four piston ones are, mm. they, they're amazing. Right. They don't feel gummy. They, they sound amazing when you're descending and, um, and you're, you know, feathering your speed. Uh, I just think there's like a lot of really interesting products being made by really interesting people. And the best part about it all is that like when you go to a trade show, it's not like they've hired someone for, to do PR or to right. the public facing side of the company. It's like, no, that's like Jim that does like the polishing or Pam that does the anodizing or, or Curtis or Kurt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, you go to you go to a trade show and you talk to Curtis Inglis, and it's like, right? Or you talk to Jeremy Cisif, or you talk to on, on yeah. On, on that note, with the trade shows, you know, um, you know, Naps obviously has, has a lot to do with the popularity of you know where we are today with you know frame builders and you know progressing that whole sector, um, but you know it's also in some ways has become a little stagnant you know, over the years and yeah. you see smaller shows popping up like these, you know, I've, I've noticed, you know, you, you've done a great job of covering these sort of get togethers, uh, throughout the U S you know, where you go camping or, um, I think Paul's hosted some, yeah. and, uh, do you think that that's the future? Yeah. You know, NABS is hard because, and this is nothing against Don Walker, the guy that runs it, but um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like if you're not constantly trying to update your paradigm, you're, it's going to get stagnant. And honestly, like, do I really need to see the same guy that's won the best TIG weld for the past like 10 years receive another award? Like, there's just not, I don't think, I don't think NABS is like forward thinking enough. I think that they are content with resting on their laurels. Um, I love NABS. I've mm -hmm. put in, I can't even begin to describe how many hours and how much pain covering NABS has given me over the years. <laughs> like I go in and that's like my, it's my hardest weekend of the year. Um, right. And I'm glad that it exists, 
but I still think that it needs like a facelift. I think, um, and so, and because it hasn't been that progressive, you've seen things like the Philly Bike Expo, which have been very progressive, gain in popularity over the years. And then you've seen like Paul Camp or the Envy Open House yeah. or like what Sklar Camp up in Bozeman a few years ago. Um, mm -hmm. But that said, I still, I still want to see, you know, I love Curtis. I love Jeremy. I love Adam. I love Cam. I love all those guys, but I still want to see some new, new faces come up. And it's right. Um, I think as a, as a friend of these builders and also a journalist, or I don't even know if I'd call myself a journalist, but like as a, as a, a website operator, I know the readership wants to see more women. Like I want to see Megan from Moth Attack at these events. And I think that's like the one thing I can say to anyone organizing a frame building or event is bring more women in. And it's not because mm -hmm. like it's a commodity to have a woman there, but like they, women build great bikes too, you know? Right. And it makes it feel less like a good old boys club. Um, right. And, uh, and that's as a, as a, I'm, I'm a white male. And yeah, I, I want to see some diversity. I'm cisgendered, but I, I still want to see some some diversity in cycling because I just ultimately think it, it makes it a more interesting, visceral uh, totally. experience. And it creates an environment where true growth will happen because like there's like the at one of the Chris King open house, like the Chris King open house the first year, there was about like 12 dudes talking about how bottom brackets are ruining the industry. And I was just like the fact that there's 12 <laughs> dudes up here arguing about bottom brackets, that's probably actually ruining the industry more than like every one of your companies have women that work at it. So why don't we have to, why, why do we have to sit here and listen to you guys arguing about bottom brackets, which is the same shit you've been arguing about for the past 20 years. Let's hear right. what women have to say. And then I you know granted, like I probably got Jay from Chris King and uh, Eric uh, in a bit of hot water or they probably, I probably like, made some uncomfortable, made some people feel uncomfortable. But then the next year, all the companies sent women and it was a way more interesting, like, you know, round table discussion about the industry. So. Um, yeah. yeah. And there's some exceptional women in the industry. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. There needs to be more yeah. and more diversity, not just women, but um, there needs to be more diversity, I think is the the better statement. Yeah. And in, in, in the cycling industry. Yeah. And I totally agree with what you're saying because it adds, it adds so much to it um and makes it a more fulfilling experience as well um and you know that also is a topic that comes up more and more i think was it pink bike just did an article on women in the industry and had like elena caldwell oh yeah and some of the other women in there it was you know definitely you know elena is one of those women i totally have a ton of respect for oh god yeah could you imagine like being one of the only women in the mountain bike industry before like any any push for inclusion and diversity elena is mm -hmm. elena's great she's she's such a like firecracker like and she's got this she's got this facade of like i had to do this i i've been the only woman in the room for the past 20 years like and i think now mm -hmm. for her seeing the industry finally like get woke is is probably like a really fulfilling thing you know yeah and i mean I agree. yeah her working at uh juliana um is really probably been really good for her because you know that's a that's a women's like kind of run bike company within the santa cruz umbrella um so yeah i think it, it's getting there you know and it makes me feel a little bit better uh my girlfriend worked in the outdoor industry for like 20 years and 
she's like it fucking sucked it like every trade show was just like a bunch of bros in like sandals like talking mm -hmm. about like whatever thing they just accomplished and then if you're a woman in a booth you always got hit on and like harassed and now you see or leading panels on uh you know wtf like diversity inclusion and a lot of outdoor photographers are doing these beautiful uh photo shoots uh this one girl i follow on instagram her name is uh jules and i think her handle is julesville she's just she's killing it she's a younger photographer that's just all of her photo shoots sort of diverse people all makes all you know all makes all models like all whatever you know and, <laughs> and to see that is really inspiring and i think that's kind of um I, I feel like i can do a better job of that um and i think we all can kind of do a better job of that and um you know, again, not to commodify anything or not to like look PC. It's just because it's the right thing to do. And if, and like I said before, yeah. if we can, if we can do better, we should do better. So, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good. Well, I think that's a good place to end this then. Yeah. Thanks, Ken. This was awesome. No, thank you, John. I appreciate it. And uh, if people don't know, you, they can find you at theradivist.com, correct? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, at, at the Radivist on Instagram and then my personal account, which is not as bike centric as John Prawley on Instagram. Perfect. But yeah. Well, hopefully right. Girona happens because I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Yeah. I, you know, the, the right now we're trying to do it early October. So yeah. um I, I know a lot of stuff is getting pushed into the autumn. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see how the schedule uh, shakes out. I know there's Chris King open house and uh, the Envy show. We're actually just, we just decided to do virtual. So we're going to keep it oh, in June, but cool. do the builder show virtual. Um, Kevin and Brian are working on that. Yeah. So yeah. stay tuned. Yeah. And, shout out to uh, Kevin and Ian and Brian. Those guys kill it. That's it, like, they're, they're so good. I, I love those guys. They're great. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank, good stuff. And thanks to you too. Cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, John. Yeah, take